Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with my co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, welcome to the the real meat of 2023. We've gotten through the appetizers. <laughs> we are now here at the at the main course. We are in it for, for good now. Wow, There's no that's, escape. that's fantastic. Well, I, I'll say I'm, I'm excited for this uh, all-vegan diet that's going to come, so... I don't think that's going to be the case, at least <laughs> in this neck of the woods. But that that's okay, too. We have enough meaty news and listener feedback that we're actually going to spend the whole episode just doing news and feedback. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to get into other stuff. So here's here's the plan going forward. Let me know how this sounds, Taz. Uh, I'm, I'm next listening. Week, next week, or this coming weekend, is Winter Fantasy, where you and I will both be attending. Exciting. Correct? I'm looking forward to it. So I have a feeling we should record there and okay. maybe talk to some of the people who are big in the organized play arena. Uh, maybe Dave Christ, maybe uh, Greg Marks, maybe Claire Hoffman, folks like that who are actually, uh, because we did get a, a question, someone wanted us to talk about organized play. So that would be a great time to oh, do yeah, that, yeah. make that a, a, a one episode show. Then when we get back to the real uh, juicy vegan part of of our calendar we will dig into other role-playing games since that's what won our uh, poll excellent well that and that also works well because there are a number of uh sort of other games that are running at winter fantasy this year which i'm excited about uh both D, &D non-al and then uh, uh which you're running some of and then there are some non uh, uh, D&D games. There's some aliens. There's a, some other really fun stuff there that looks cool. So, yeah, I like that plan. Uh, so today's show, all news, all the time, which is great because, boy, there's a metric ton of it. Yeah, and we've been skipping out on pieces because of the open gaming license uh, stuff. <laughs> so we've had to push off a lot of news that we are going to get to today. We're going to get through all of it, as well as some great comments and questions from our listeners and then go into next week with the plan of news and analysis as we normally do. Fantabulous. So, yes, sir. So with that stated, let's get to our first listener who comes in via Patreon. This is Nick Drochak. I've spoken before about playing a lot of different tables, or I'm sorry, you've spoken before about playing a lot of different tables as a DM to get better. I'd love to hear more about what you learned. Maybe frame it as a level 1 to 20 DM class. What class features should we as DMs growing our craft think to add to our character sheet? And this is that's a really good question and a really interesting way to frame it. So what do you think, Teos? What are, what are some of your thoughts for Nick here? So much. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it is like one of the... the kind of biggest tips if, if anybody were to say like what should i do to like acquire skills and learn and this kind of stuff i would say go run tons of games at conventions right because you learn so much by going from one table to another like when you're running your table you know your group and you get to learn them in their ways and what pleases them and and when you are at a convention especially running the same adventure over and over again you run table a table b table c and one of them has a great time, one of them has an okay time, one of them has a bad time. And you can reflect on all that and think about, was it something I did? Is it that the adventure doesn't resonate in a particular way? And the more you do that, you get to really see what is it in adventure design that sort of pleases lots of people 
pleases a few kind of niche people, you know, and, and you learn approaches around all this because you are exposed to all these different types of interests and kind of ways that people will play. Um, and it, you, you know, I have talked about in the past about player types, right? Actor, explorer, instigator, power gamer, slayer, storyteller, uh, thinker, watcher. And that's one of those things where this comes into play because when you're running for so many different people, you kind of learn to identify what different players look like, uh, you know, what they want, right? And so, so you're like, you start the game and very quickly you're like, oh, okay, that person, you know, I, I, this kind of experience will really work for them. And this person really needs this kind of experience. And so you develop these good techniques. Um, just some other stuff, Sean, and I'll shut up is pacing because you have to run things, uh, in, in a timetable. So when you're running lots of tables, it tends to be a store or a convention and you learn how to stay on track, finish on time, how to handle the combat that's running long, how to keep that pacing flowing, um, things like character and scene introductions so that they get you started really fast on a good footing. Um, yeah, so I think that you know, and all these things are helpful when you go back and you run just for your one table, but they are things that especially are helpful uh, when you are designing for many tables or if you're going to DM at the conventions or stores, of course. Yeah, and and I agree with everything Teo said to take his uh, analysis and go in a different direction. For me, DMing, the closest thing I can compare it to is teaching with the DM being the instructor and the players being the students. And obviously there are many differences between those two things, but there are also many similarities that I've noticed. Now, you know, I, I was educated as a teacher, but I have not been a full-time teacher. I teach occasionally. So I do not want to come off. Like I think I'm a master teacher. That's, that's my wife. And we talk about education a lot. And so if we're going to go to the class right? Your class features, your, your DM level one. I, I think of that as also a teacher level one. So a level one teacher generally knows the content that they're going to teach, but it's a, it's a matter of delivering it in a way that your students will be able to best understand it, to make mm -hmm. it interesting, to make complex ideas simple to grasp at first, uh, to let the student take your example and learn themselves from that, right? All of those things are important to teaching. So in teaching, you have many different kinds of students and each student is going to have a different interest, a different ability level, all of that. When you're a DM, you're going to have many different kinds of players from very experienced who want mechanics to very inexperienced. Um, you may have experience that want storytelling, but not mechanics. You may have inexperienced but wants heavy mechanics how do you meld all of those things in the same class at the same table um, there are many different methods to teach the same material there are many different play styles that handle the gameplay of the same adventure um, teaching isn't just spouting out information right it's managing expectations it's leading exploration it's teaching skills as well as information well dming just isn't about spouting stories or rules it's about leading the exploration of the story and the rules uh teaching is uh understanding and using multiple tools to get the information across dming is using multiple tools grids minis roll 20 uh or just a piece of paper to get that same experience. Um, communication 
is as important as the content and teaching, especially when it comes to keeping the students' attention and picking up on nonverbal clues from your students. Mm. Communication is important, is as important as the content for DMs, especially when it comes to keeping your audience's attention and picking up on nonverbal cues, right? All of these things are about communication, teaching, yeah. and and uh, and DMing. And so all of it comes together in a very neatly uh, segmented and similar way. Hmm. So as you level up as a DM for me, you are learning. Uh, obviously, you're still learning about the rules, but generally you go in knowing enough about the rules to run the table. It's about that table management. That's the most important thing. And that's what Teos already told us about is managing the table based on just table after table and year after year and adventure after adventure of experience where you get to see it all play out right in front of your very eyes. And, and yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, and it's interesting how great DMs that I see at conventions over and over again, I know that when I sit at that, table i'll have a great time and it is mm -hmm. irregardless of how good the adventure is right and and uh an, an okay dm will say something like well this this adventure isn't that great which is a, a bad thing to say <laughs> and they'll right. deliver an okay experience right but it doesn't matter yeah. you know and 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 the really really great dms play off of everything you do and reward and heighten everything that the players are doing and when you play at that kind of a table, it's another kind of experience, right? Like where you just sense that difference of how they're taking care of you, how they are feeding off of what you're doing. And, and it is management, right? It is. You can just see them spinning all the right. things, the, the adventure, the plots, what your players are doing. They're, they're making notes of what you want, right, to experience and giving you more of that. And that, that's just great. That's the best. Yep. And everything you just said goes to teaching as well, right? If you walk in and, as a teacher and say, well, this is really hard. You guys are going to have a hard time with this. Uh, already the, the students are going to be you know, sitting back on their heels. Whereas if you walk in enthusiastic and say, this lesson, you're not going to believe how much fun we're going to have and what you're going to learn. And you go in that way, everyone, it's, you know, their expectations are heightened uh, and they're more receptive to your learning. Yeah. And the teacher is always making sure that they're they're making eye contact with the different students and calling on different students and not not going um or mm -hmm. right using these repetitive phrases that students will then start writing down how many times the teacher went um or okay or something like that. Same thing with players. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're going to pick up on those verbal ticks, and so it's it's an amazing experience to to do. And there was a. And, we could we could have an old episode yeah. about this. There was a comment that was left on our YouTube uh, this last week that that was pretty fun, where it said um, about how their DM had had run a classic D and D adventure for them, and then they looked at it and been like, "Wait, this wasn't kind of you know that was they threw all this extra stuff in, right?" And that's one of those things that we can get so married to the written word that we fail to see what actually the players need, right? And and it especially happens if you wrote it where <laughs> you're trying to like, I've had the experience where I'm trying to remember what I wrote and how, and I'm like, why? It's not like it's some perfect thing on the paper, right? Like just go with what the moment calls for, right? Describe the scene the way you want to describe it. And it'll be, you know, that's more important than whatever was actually mm -hmm. written down. Right. And that can be just as, 
as valuable as running lots of different players and lots of different tables. And that's run different things at those different tables. As Teo yeah. said, try to run a short published adventure and stick as close as possible. Then try to run a short published adventure, but do anything you want. Yeah. And then just go in with a, a one page of notes and make the rest up and see how that goes. And all of those experiences will teach you through your players' reactions how well you're doing and how much of those reactions are to you versus just what the player likes. Absolutely, right? Whew, so that was, uh, Good one. that was a great question. So thank you uh, so much for that, Nick. We will now move on to MD Black Rabbit via Mastodon. This is a long one, so hang in there. Do you all think, uh, do you all think for the TTRPG industry, the controversy over the open gaming license has a parallel in the controversy the music industry had resolved in the late 90s, early aughts with digital content and peer-to-peer -peer sharing with Napster and similar sites? I'm going to skip the next part, but it you know talks about what, what that controversy was. Uh, it marked a major shift in how the public was exposed and consumed music. I was wondering if you both felt the TTRPG was in a similar space with the open gaming license controversy, particularly with more and more folks participating through virtual tabletops. Mm. Teos, take it away. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was in a metal band in high school as, uh, as, as required by law. And uh, <laughs> I worked gigs large and small in the music industry. I had a lot of fun. I pretended to be a roadie many times. Uh, I love the music industry, and and I do see that there are a number of parallels, though they are also very different industries. And 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 while I see, you know, what the question is getting at, um, and and there are these huge changes in both the music industry and in the RPG industry about platforms and contracts, um, and you can see how music at times had a you know a very clear way that it operated. Right. So it was like, hey, you've got these radio stations that are paying pop. They're playing pop music. And that is driven totally by the engine of producers that are driving growth. And then something happens and the ecosystem is upset and it changes. Um, music contracts are vile. The OGL, however, is, is a little different. Right. It's, it's not a platform um, and, it, and it's more of, of, a, of an incentive that has brought a lot of people towards writing for one of the games. Uh, but what you do with it is totally up to you. And that's where you get into the downside of the RPG industry, which is that it's brutal, even though there's no, uh, you know, the contract is fine. There's nothing terrible about it. The RPG industry itself is one where however you choose to sell that, it's really hard to get attention. There is no radio station out there. Um, maybe hitching your, your horse to D&D helps somewhat, but not entirely. Um, you can be on the DMs Guild and be buried. There, there are a lot of factors that are hard to measure as to why you're going to achieve success in the RPG industry. Something that is a parallel is that the smartest musicians that you look at are those who have streamlined operations for those activities. Like, go check up on what Bon Jovi did to reinvent touring. <laughs> um, the smartest musicians run that efficiently. They save and reinvest. Uh, you can look at David Bowie and what he did with investments from his music industry. And nobody would have thought David Bowie would have been the kind of person to do it, but he did. Um, and the same thing is true in RPGs. Talented people, there are lots of them, but some of the talented people make no money. And some of them find ways to create a, a really strong business 
Um, they are making smart move after smart move. Everything they do feels like it's being reinvested and leads to growth. And, and so that is something that I think is an interesting parallel. On platforms and changes, the way that, say, Spotify has commoditized music and, and really is kind of destroying it and shrinking it, we haven't had that parallel yet, right? But it could happen, right? There could be a situation where platforms, rather than highlight us, would shrink things further. And, and I think I'll probably add to the show notes uh, a, a very interesting article that talks about how tech platforms are doing this, where they start with being really popular, really attractive, and whether it's a Facebook or a Twitter or whatever, then they start to put in all these terrible features to try to enrich in themselves and, uh, and biggin, and, and they, they lock you into that platform and basically destroy everything that they once built. And it's a fascinating thing there. And I think that is a possible parallel that we have to always look at because the art and creativity of music just at a general level can't sustain you the way it once could. Mm -hmm. And everything Teo said, yes. Uh, and the people who consume music are very different than the people who consume role-playing games because role-playing games is not a passive thing. Now music doesn't have to be a passive thing, but for the most part, you don't listen to a song because you are drumming out the part. You, you generally listen to the song and, and that's what you do. It's either in the background or you're actively listening, but you're not doing anything else. A role-playing game is a much different medium and it, it involves people who are taking it and doing something with that role-playing game actively. That makes it very different, as we just found out with the DMs Guild, uh, and uh, not DMs Guild, D&D &D Beyond, where people were upset about things that were going on and they canceled their subscription and it moved a needle. Yeah, People the same number of people leaving Spotify would not move a needle, would not change the music industry. Uh, but it did in this case mm. because the consumers of role-playing games are different. And I think Wizards, under, not Wizards, really, Hasbro, mm. underestimated how different a medium it is and how different the audience is. Uh, so as Teo said, we could see something similar going on in the future, but I think the customer base, the audience base for role-playing games as players, not as brand enthusiasts, but as players can move the needle in protest much easier than in other areas. So moving on, we have Jorf Dan via Mastodon. Do you believe movements like the OSR, the old school renaissance, are too fractured? Will the new OGL keep D&D &D as a base, or will we end up with dozens of games that more or less accomplish the same thing? So when when uh, Jorf Dan asks about the OSR, he's talking about the old school renaissance games, which are essentially using older versions of D&D &D to create a rule set that does the things that old versions of D&D &D did, or sometimes trying to update them to use the old rules, but 
offer a new play experience. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of such games out there. Hence the question, are they too fractured? So I think the question involves two issues, the games and the businesses. I don't think the games themselves are too fractured, even though there are hundreds, if not thousands, because there may be an audience for the particular thing that you did with your game. Business-wise, I would say that it is too fractured to become a major business because if you're trying to build a thriving publishing company on games that are very much clones of each other, then there isn't a way to really, you can maybe support one person and probably not even full-time one person, uh, not, not to mention 20, 30, 40, 100 people uh, as that. So is it too fractured? Not if you'd like games like that and want to play a bunch of different games. Uh, is it too fractured to hang a business on? Yes. Yeah, agreed. Uh, the, you know, OSR is trying to recreate nostalgia. And it's nostalgia for older editions that often people played in vastly different ways. And you can read all the historical accounts of, you know, how there was, you know, West Coast scenes that played it entirely differently than it was played in the middle of the country where it was created, right? And just within a span of a couple of years. And, and, and so many people will tell you that when they started with a game like Basic or AD&D, they would play a certain way and then meet another group and the group would be like, we don't do it that way. That's not what that rule says. And you'd think about it and maybe both end up playing differently at the end of it. And so when we're trying to recreate that kind of nostalgia, we're going to inevitably end up with some real differences because the game was so wide open to interpretation. Now, third edition on, you really end up with games that are pretty standardized, right? They have, they have a clear way that they explain what the rules are trying to do and what the game's trying to do. So we know what the game is trying to do. And even if we go back to recreate nostalgia for, say, 3E or 4E, the game is what it is. It's pretty obvious. And it was generally a thing to most people, right? We could choose our own personal preference, but the game is what the game is. And so when you create for 5e, that's the truth as well. But you may want the game to be different. And that's where now you may create a variance. It's a little different than the OSR that if people say, I want to make D&D different, maybe because of the news that just finished happening, maybe just for your own reasons, that's fine. And as you said, Sean, the, the game supports that. And, and I'm sure you can find some players that may love it and sing about it, you know, sing its praises very loudly. But can you get the audience that will play it and drive good sales and make you a good company uh, that can pay yourself, employees, and so on? That's hard, right? And the more that you choose to make a variant, the more that you're splintering away from the people who are going to want it. And, and that's true of, of any kind of tack. If you say, you know, my world is one where uh, there are no clerics. Well, everybody who loves clerics is going to say, well, that's not the game for me. <laughs> and any decision like that, you're splintering off. And the more of those that are splinters, I don't think it hurts D&D much. Um, you know, people, so many people are, are learning D&D by just walking into a gaming store and picking something off the shelf. And, and so I don't think it, it really impacts it at that level. It's more that the company's trying to live off of that. Then that's a tall order. Uh, Kurt Ugel from YouTube. I'm interested in the products that you two have worked on and what you learned from the process. 
both in business, mechanics, layout, storytelling, aids, etc. I'm also interested in what you two have run, how your personal player GM styles evolved over time, and how your critical eye affects gameplay. Okay, so this is this is a really really big question. Yeah. Uh, and I I'm going to say I'm going to try to get to the gist of the question for me. Uh, what I learned about role-playing games through active work in the, in the industry and play, it led me to ask a couple questions when I'm working on a product or a game, or I'm sitting down to learn about a product or a game. There's basically three questions. Uh, one, what is your product and game meant to do? What is the experience it is supposed to invoke in me? Two, how exactly does it do that thing that you say it is meant to do, right? Mm -hmm. You say this is supposed to be a fast, fun-paced storytelling game. Okay, good. When I read the rules, it's a fun, fast-paced storytelling game. Mm -hmm. And how do the rules do that? So then I go to, if you lie to me in the first question, <laughs> you say this is a fast-paced storytelling game, and I start reading it, and it is a mechanic-heavy, very slow-paced game that really doesn't even tell a story then you lied to me and you're in trouble now if i read the rules and i realize you lied to yourself that this is supposed to be that but the rules do not uh make that happen then you're also in trouble because i'm not going to engage with the product as much as i would otherwise and when i design games that is how i go about it why are we making this product, this new game, this supplement? What is it meant to do? What experience is it supposed to invoke? And then everything I do, whether I'm writing it or editing it or the lead designer, so I'm overseeing people, it's always going back to that question. How does this doing what we said it was going to do? Is it doing what it said it was going to do? When we play test it, does it do these things? Uh, then we know whether we've got a product that we're ready to go forward with. Yeah. That's that's great, Sean. And and that makes me think of something that's really important to me and that I think I've learned a lot from all the different projects that I've worked on, which is that when I create things for home, right, for my own personal use, and especially when I was younger, you know, before I even thought about being a part of the industry, I was doing my things that I liked and was passionate about, and I just assumed everybody would like. <laughs> I like this movie, this TV series, I'm going to do that kind of thing here players, you better enjoy it because that's what you're getting, right? And when you work for other people, they will say to you, I want this, write this. And well, that's what you've got to do, right? And so being hired to do a thing like that, where it's, it's isn't necessarily what you would have created to begin with, but then you find how to make it interesting for you, sure. But more importantly, is to think to separate yourself from the work and to say, this is what that company wants. And this is what the audience wants. Hopefully it's their audience. That's all. the audience is their audience. But, you know, what, what, what do they want? What should this thing be? Which gets to those questions that you're saying, Sean, right? It really is that that should all work, right? And so I've talked about things like with Dwarven Forge, where, I mean, Dwarven Forge is a miniature terrain company. So when I am creating, uh, we're about to launch a full Kickstarter, um, when I'm creating an adventure for them, I think about their perspective as a terrain company, like the terrain needs to matter in this adventure, right? And the people who are buying it are people who have purchased the terrain. So the terrain needs to be awesome because they've made an awesome purchase. 
And so those things, being able to step out of your own skin and see what the audience wants is super critical. Um, and I think that, I mean, this is a huge question because as you are creating in a lot of different projects, as the list of projects grows on, you have more and more experiences and you pick up more and more skills, right? Things like working with others or project management, team management, um, deadlines, right? Just all these kinds of things. Uh, and, and they can be far ranging. Like, I mean, I've learned in the last few years, podcasting, streaming, which started with me asking my son how to use OBS, uh, video editing, sound, and then there's layout, font choices, color combinations. I mean, all kinds of skills that I'm just barely scratching the surface of and trying to figure out how to do uh, properly. And all of these learnings leak into your larger life, right? I've created character generators in Excel that are the reason I was able to do a really good job on a, on a project because I was able to use an Excel tool to do it, right? And I can't tell the client, well, I learned that making a you know, Legend of the Five Rings uh, character <laughs> generator. Uh, collectible card databases taught me how to use MS Access, right? I mean, all kinds of things like that. And, and so all these things are going to come your way. And the key, I think, is making the voyage like super fun and, and enriching over time because then you, you keep enjoying evolving your style, changing up how you approach things. But at the end of it, the biggest influences for me, Sean, are, are the people that I meet, uh, the products they create, how they run tables, how they play a character. Those are the things that probably resonate the most over the years. Um, and it's led to big evolutions for me in how I approach the game, how I approach story, how I approach adventure writing, campaigns, all of that. Um, and in the industry, right? People who... I've seen do great things. What resonates to me the most are those people who teach others what they're learning and share their experiences and help others rise. And so that's been a huge influence for me as well, as I know it's been for you as well. Yeah, I mean, you and I both came into the industry through organized play. And so going back to our the first question we answered, right, we learned about the game through that avenue first. We learned about creating something and then watching a hundred people running the thing you wrote and the terror of that, but also the educational value of that and how important game masters are to the process. So you want to speak to the game master when you're creating your adventure. And for the, or the first organized play adventures that we created, it was text only. There was no art. There was some editing, but not right. you know, a super amount of editing. No, no sort of layout control. It was basically a Word document. So we had to learn to communicate all of that with maybe a rough drawn handout as the most yeah. you know, exquisite piece of <laughs> nonverbal communication we could have. When I started working for Wizards directly, I started learning more about the production of things. Oh, we can put minis in a box. We can put cardboard cutouts. What? Oh, we can we can make poster maps? Hmm. Yeah. Then I Please started working for Ghost Gaming, right? where we have a full, yeah, where we have a full production team. So now, from the very moment I'm sitting down and concepting something, I'm thinking about minis. I'm thinking about all of the things that we could possibly do with say an upcoming Kickstarter that'll launch in about two weeks called Valakin Clans. Check it out on Kickstarter. Uh, right from the start, we're, we're thinking about how we can enhance play experience in those ways. So, so you do learn those things, but 
I know for me and probably for Teos too, it always comes back to, you know, what we learned as DMs and players. That's where the experience starts and ends for a lot of folks. So we want to make sure we get that right, right from the start. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and that is interesting about the, the production process. Like uh, I was working on a project recently involving monsters and we had a meeting involving artists. And you can see how something like monster design can be done in a complete silo, right? Like, hey, you know, make me, uh, you know, I don't know, a giant war ogre. And then someone else can say, we're going to have adventures that use these war ogres. Here are the kind of things they need to do. Here's the lore of the world and how war ogres fit into it. Here are the kinds of considerations the artists would like to work with, right? Let's weave that all together so that the war ogre stat block and history and write-up and everything fit into all of these things that we're doing. And the more you can do that, the better that the whole product line is going to be, right? And But on the other hand, you and I have both had experiences, even for really big companies, where they tell you, I need you to write this thing. And halfway through, they say, oh, yeah, um, this isn't that kind of product. Or where this adventure is going to premiere is totally different than you thought it was. Or Actually, this feeds off of a thing that we're currently making. We haven't shared the draft with you, so you didn't know that. And <laughs> just complete curveballs. And it really impedes your ability yeah. to create a good work because you haven't been brought into that process, right? Yeah, I, I've worked on a couple projects for Wizards where I wrote adventures based on some novels that they had put out. And I was so excited when I actually got a copy of the novel before I started writing the adventure because I could actually know what was happening. So that shows how sometimes, you know, certain organizations or certain groups within organizations just don't have either the resources to do it the way it needs to be done or the, the foresight or any of those things. But when you talk about a full product, you're talking about, you know, at least a year or more of work without, many many more people involved than just game designers um, so it's 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 much harder uh but it's much better it's much it's a much better product for the dms and players and consumers when you are able to do it right that brings us through to our news and commentary section which will bring us home but we have a long road ahead of us before we sleep so let's get into it. First of all, Teos, we're number two. We're, we're number, number two. two. We're, we're number, number two. two. Yeah, I mean, uh, according to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk podcast, we were voted the second best podcast for 2022 in the category of talk, not actual play, since we don't actually play on the podcast. Who was number one? Well, it was none other than Mike Schle Mike Shea, Sly Flourish. Uh, so, yeah, Mike, you're number one. We all knew it. Uh, we now it's official. So, congratulations, <laughs> yeah. good job. And luckily, luckily, once you win this, uh, you are taken out of the running for next oh, year. Thank goodness. So we have a chance next year. I don't yeah, think that's actually true, but. Year. But uh, I am really thankful to everybody who voted because these kinds of internet things are not easy to win or get number two. So earning number two is, is really quite enormous. So thank you very much to everybody who was part of that. That's amazing. 
um you know i don't know that we we gave uh mike shea the sweats but uh but uh, but it was fun and, and we had some really enjoyable banter uh mike shea and, and the two of us about this uh obviously his his work is incredible uh so is morris's podcast and and everybody who's on that list um there are so many on there that are really just fantastic works and and i think that if they could mobilize fans would would uh would leave us in the dust so i'm super super thankful um yeah really neat it was a nice nice pick me up to hear that so awesome yeah. i didn't want to thank be number you. one anyway thank you all for for your votes yeah yeah we, we lose our street credit for number one <laughs> yeah yeah no we're, we're indie not like that sold out mike shea right i mean just... we, yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so let's talk about the og elephant in the room thank you to one of our listeners for saying you missed the, the opportunity for the og elephant and i'm like yeah I'm, I'm i feel ashamed that i didn't think of that so thank you so where do we stand with the ogl teos what's going on did wow. anything important happen since the last time we oh, recorded just a bit i mean what a reversal the week started with like coverage and npr and it just looked to be like more of the same where this issue is going to grow and grow and grow and, and just spin out of control and yeah, it, it was, it, I mean, it really was looking as dark as it could, re could be, right? Yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, at one point, you know, you had people who didn't does, don't even play coming up and asking you, what's going on with this? Because they heard it on NPR or on some other you know, national or international news source. My, my first week of my class was last week. Mm -hmm. And normally when I start talking about the business side of things, people, even the most hardcore gamers don't really know what's what the ogl is they many don't even know what like dnd beyond is or or uh, dm's guild and i had half the class going yeah we need to talk about this open gaming license i'm like yeah yeah we probably do let's <laughs> let's get to that a little later in the semester uh hoping that it would resolve itself in three months but yeah it seems that maybe we uh maybe we have resolved it in less than 24 hours after we recorded. <laughs> it was incredible. Uh, on Wednesday, January 25th, D&D Beyond posted on Twitter saying that more than 10,000 people had responded to the survey and that the draft 1.2 had not hit the mark for our community. And they pointed to a fact page, an FAQ page that would be updated. And just two days after that, that page was gone because there was this incredible post from Wizards of the Coast saying, the survey results are super clear. We don't need to hear more. We're shutting down the survey as well. And we are making three, what were really a big, two huge changes. And then there's a third point they make. So they make three points. One, we are leaving the OGL 1.0a in place as is untouched, which, <laughs> I mean, whenever I would talk to folks about what would be, you know, you know, what would you hope in your, in your dreamiest of dreams, right? That would be one. Uh, and then the second just exceeded basically anything that anyone had thought would be possible, which is let's make the entire SRD 5.1. So that's the current SRD available under a Creative Commons license. So for commercial use, it is out there already. Uh, it even includes things you wouldn't think maybe would be included, uh, like names of name Mind Flare, the name Beholder, not the stats, uh, Strad von Zarich. So you know, and then the third point they made is you choose which you prefer to use. And that was fascinating because, you know, you, you now have this real option of whether you want to keep on using 1.0a as you have. And if you have a project that's already 
being done and it's maybe part two of it, you can do that, but you can also just use the Creative Commons. Um, anything about that you want to say, Sean? Yeah, it's it goes way, way beyond what people were asking for. What reasonable people were asking for, it went way beyond that. And even what some unreasonable people were asking for, it went beyond that as well. <laughs> uh, you know, this, you know, a, the line in the sand for most people was do not re in, revoke the OGL 1.0A. And so they're like, oh, okay, there. We, we're not going to revoke it. And we'll just throw it all in, in Creative Commons. Do what you want. Uh, are there still going to be issues? There sure are still going to be issues. Because anytime lawyers are involved, there are going to be issues. Uh, whether they are issues that are there or issues that are made up by lawyers in order <laughs> to continue to do their lawyerly things. Uh, and I have many lawyer friends and family, so no offense to, to lawyers out there. You guys got to do your thing and, mm -hmm. and we're good. Uh, but if people are still complaining about <laughs> it at this point, yeah, then they're, they're either just hating on wizards for the purpose of hating on wizards or they're marketing something. Mm. They're trying to sell something else uh, because this is resolved now. Right. You can continue to put out your fifth edition works. There's no reason you can't. That puts the ground back under the feet of creators. Uh, it, it's all good. Will there be more issues coming? Absolutely. Uh, but at least for now, there's no reason not to move forward with plans. Yeah. And one of the things that was really amazing to me was to try to be and, and you know, and, and kind of behind why this was such a huge surprise is that you would think that wizards had initiated this process for some reasons and those reasons were big that's why they did such a big thing and they wrote on their blog post so what about the goals that drove us when we started this process we wanted to protect the DD &D play experience into the future we still want to do that with your help we're grateful this community is passionate and active because we'll need your help protecting the game's inclusive and welcoming nature hard to know what that really means right they said, we wanted to limit the OGL to TTRPGs. With this new, new approach, we are setting that aside and counting on your choices to define the future of play. And, and so, you know, they really are sticking to their guns here about sort of what this is about. And, and, and so it makes you think a lot about uh, what, what can we, you know, make of, of these changes? Because whatever Wizards of the Coast goals were, either the goals were flawed or they were doing a bunch of, and, and they were doing things without much planning, right? So for example, the first iteration, the, the, the leaked version was all about royalties. And the second version, the royalties were completely gone. So were those important or not? If they weren't important, why were they there in such huge numbers? Like, how was it so ill thought out? Um, if they if they really were a critical part part of of what was important to them, then how are they going to make that up, right? If they have some revenue line item projection that was based on this, well, that's got to be zeroed out, and where's that going to come from? Or you know, it, there's so many questions that aren't answered and and won't you know probably ever be answered because history can never quite uh, get to the truth at that level of detail, but. But it's really quite fascinating, right? Either either they didn't have very defined plans and thus it could all be chucked aside or they did. And now things really have to be reimagined. 
um, you know, what is their actual plan for? Yeah. Well, I, when I recorded the Eldritch Lorecast Monday last week, Mm -hmm. I basically said exactly this. I, I addressed them directly. I took off my Ghostfire Gaming yeah, hat. And I like that. I saw that. And said, listen, you need to decide what your goals are, which goals can move, which goals are set in concrete, mm-hmm. and then create the license to achieve those specific goals and let everything else go. And I think that's pretty much what they did. They, they again, underestimated our, the audience for their game and what they would do and how they consume their games and their content. And once they figured that out, they decided to get rid of everything that they were thinking before, at least in terms of this open gaming license Mm -hmm. and said, you know, if, if people are going to make movies from, from our stuff, we'll have that fight down the road. It's not worth trying to fight it out right now in this nebulous thing that's going to apply to people who it doesn't even need to apply to, right? right? How many companies in the world are going to try to make a D&D movie? <laughs> or Probably pantomime, <laughs> right? I mean, pantomime exactly. was on the original draft yes. version for a thing you couldn't right. do. Like, it's so amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to invest $100 million to make a movie that's going to be just like the D&D movie. Uh, or video game or virtual tabletop or character generator or whatever, or whatever, or whatever you wizards of the coast Hasbro is the big player in this space. And I think they decided, okay, let's just ignore all, all of the stuff that's not, not beneath us, but that cannot rival us because of the resources we have. And we'll punt the ball down the field a ways that was our sports reference for Mike Shea for the week. <laughs> we'll punt the ball down the field and we'll deal with these other things later because the fallout right now is too great. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think that's very wise because, you know, you can look at things like, you know, Lord of the Rings movie, right? Those kinds of things uh, on one hand can be viewed as competitive, but of course they're not, right? They lead everybody to go mm-hmm. and think about these kinds of things and, and look for those kinds of, uh, experiences, right? Stranger Things has obviously been, obviously been an enormous boost. You know, why would you want to stop anybody from possibly doing an, something like that, right? And and using D and D material in the game, right? To to reference things like Vecna and so on, right? Like you want that to happen, right? So that searches of Vecna do go through the roof, right? And so it is a fine line. It is tough, and I I do think you know Wizards is, logically does want to protect their IP and 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 think about where the industry could get out of hand and, and, and leave them behind. That is natural to want to do that, that you, you'd want to do that to be smart. But you also have to know when to step back, which amazingly they did. And part of that was, you know, one of the big lessons is the community bonded together in a way that they've never done before. And, 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 and even over things like people who have done really hateful things in the industry, right? Dave Chalker made this point today on Mastodon. Like there are some people who have been such bad actors and people, the community did not rally that way around it and, and should, right? But somehow here, it wasn't just competitors, though certainly the competitors sharpened their knives, but it was allies, it was partners, it was, you know, the person who had announced their product line you know, just a few months ago. It was it was really so broad based and and that was incredible to see 
And I think now the entire industry is on notice that that could potentially happen if someone were to do something so significantly problematically. Um, I think you have to yeah. wonder what, how this I, impacts I think, 1D yeah, and D, Sean. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the 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 allies talking of, about how bad this was was much stronger than the normal din of complaints and outrage. I know that I had several conversations with people at Wizards of the Coast, not decision makers, but behind the scenes, and they didn't understand what was what the big deal was for some of these things. For some of it, they understood. Some of it, they didn't. And my being able to take them step by step through me as a creator, this is this is why this is bad for me. And then there was this recognition of, oh, I'd never thought of it in those terms. That's when we started to see yeah. progress being made when the people who Wizards is consider partners or friends were also saying these things. And behind the scenes, a reasonable conversation could be had yeah. in order to make progress. And hopefully 1D&D, well, 1D&D is now a whole different topic, right? <laughs> because yeah. there was conjecture from folks like you and I that 1D&D was being done because it was the 50th anniversary, so you want to take advantage of that. But also because we needed to get rid of the open gaming license for various reasons. So we have a new addition. Or partnerships now with other companies. The open gaming license, right. Now that, now that the one open gaming license and the creative commons srd is is a thing what happens with one dnd is are the business reasons for that going forward still the same and if the business reasons change does that change what's going to happen in the development of the game and we haven't seen a new packet in a long time for obvious reasons so how does that affect what we're going to see in one yeah. dnd Will we see one D and D at all? Will we continue with fifth edition? Will we get, there are so many different ways that wizards could go here. And I just, I don't know enough about their business side of things to know what the path forward, what the best path forward would be, what the most profitable path path forward would be, what the most fan friendly path forward mm -hmm. would be getting all of those things to, to come together in a single plan is it's challenging, but hey, that's why yeah. the people with the C's in front of their names hopefully are there to <laughs> make the best decisions. Yeah, w working with the teams, and and you know to that end, and and speaking to what you said a little bit ago about in, internal conversations, it was really nice to see, and and in some cases, um, members of Wizards did reach out to community people. Um, there was an influencer account that sent emails to all of. Uh, a number of people who are on, on a sort of influence group that um, can receive like product reviews and, and who are streaming partners and things like that. And so, you know, we received that uh, both emails that we received were really extremely well written, right? Very different than that first blog post that was such a, such an air ball. Um, the, uh, mm -hmm. but now when Teo says we, he's talking about him and other influencers. No. He's not talking about, I mean, me. anyway. I did not get any such email just, just to be clear. Anyway. Uh, you, you, yeah, you are yeah. more indie than I am, <laughs> uh, but, yes. but I really was thankful. I mean, I'm thankful to be on that list, but also very thankful to see the care that was taken towards that, which is exactly what we'd want to see in these types of situations. 
and there and there is you know more of an open open channel now towards you know please tell us what you're seeing and how you're seeing it and i think that could tie into one D D as well because i think before with one D D, you know i wanted to be a little reserved in my judgment of it because um you know, I don't know where it, I mean, some of it's to be fair, right? I don't know how it'll change over time. I could have been super critical about D&D Next and look how great 5e is, right? So so you never know how things will exactly shape. But I think we may see folks be a little more uh, critical of it. And I don't mean in just a negative, but to just to critique it, right? To analyze it and fairly say what they're seeing and not seeing. Um, and, and hopefully that is healthy rather than the negative, right? That it leads to kind of adjustments and changes and so on. And, and I know that when I've spoken about the OGL through responding to these types of things, I've also included in it feedback about the SRD or the, the um, 1D&D because I think that 1D&D links to this, right? It's, it's around their goals and execution and, and, and it's worth re-examining that, right? Like, so things like survey design, right? Is, are you getting the right questions, the right feedback? That's really important. Um, one last thing I wanted to hit on this, Sean, which is, the question has often come up, what should creators do? And I've, a number of folks have asked me, whether it's through Patreon or other methods, saying, like, what do we do? Should we use the OGL? Should we use the Creative Commons? Sort of what's the, the difference? And I reached out to, to Alex Kammer, who has been on a, a really good uh, series of RPG bot uh, podcasts uh, talking about all the legal issues. He's going to be on that show again, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and he agreed that in most cases, a creator for a future product would probably use the, the, the CC license. That's probably the easiest way to go. But projects that are already on OGL 1.A, or if it's a series and wants to link to other open con content under 1.0A, then continuing on with that is just fine. Right? There's no reason not to. Um, so, so it's a little bit of a fine line, and I think we'll see a lot of other folks examine that question, but at least that's my initial read on, on how to proceed with it and, and what Alex's as well. Yeah, my understanding is there is very little settled law in this arena. Uh, as we saw many lawyers arguing with each other about what any of this meant. And even the settled law these days in the U.S. is not necessarily settled. We've learned that we're just, you know, one court case away, <laughs> one Supreme, Supreme Court ruling away from having what we believed was settled law become something completely different. So even with a contract that, that may be in place, anything you publish, you're publishing at your own risk. So you have to weigh that risk. Proceed with clear eyes, uh, with backup plans in case things go wrong, right? If you can't afford to put the money into a $2 million Kickstarter with all sorts of things, then, then think twice about doing it because you could, again, have the rug yanked out from under you. It's less likely now, but it's there's still no... Even if they do, if even if someone does break what you consider a contract, do you have the money to go to court to fight that? Yeah. So yeah, and I think again, where the OGL the risks versus the rewards. Yeah, and where the OGL was before, you know, rewind back time to say December or November, um, there was this sort of feeling like, well, the OGL gives me sort of this understanding of how to operate, and so we don't have to worry. But now that it's in the CC and it's a little different, I think I think it does make sense for anybody who's publishing to make sure that you really are abiding by that, because it may be enforced a little more carefully, either now or in the future, 
Um, and so be careful not to make the mistakes that some have done when they're using the OGL to just go beyond that, right? It's worth looking at. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of worth looking at, the new D&D movie trailer is out, and now we can maybe even watch it and enjoy it. So in our show notes, Teos did a great job of breaking down like scene by scene and frame by frame all the cool D&D stuff. We're running out of time already, yeah. so I don't think we're going to cover all of that. But what did you think, just in general, of the of the trailer tales? I mean, as a fan, being able to come back post-OGL debacle and really just sit back and enjoy this. If, if you watched it you know, back when you were mad, watch it again. It looks great. It really looks really full of fun and action. I can see why it's been compared to Guardians of the Galaxy and its approach that they took. I mean, it, it has that sort of humorous angle to it. Uh, it's got all kinds of amazing things like the city of Neverwinter and displacer beasts and jumping into a gelatinous cube to escape a displacer beast and just endless numbers of hooks and lore. And, and I mean, it just to me, I'm super excited. Uh, I have not been to a movie in a theater for trillion years, but uh, but th this might do it. We'll see. Yep. Um, depending on how many seats are available, I may go. Uh, but yeah, I, it looks really cool. The, the Forgotten Realms wiki team broke down all the seams even further, but our show notes has all the breakdown of, of, of a couple of articles where the writer directors talked about what all of this trailer shows and, and what it means. And it's neat because just a lot of this, a lot of the guesses that folks have had are now being confirmed as to who's involved and what kind of story it is. And it looks really neat. Yeah. I think I've said for a while now, if a hardcore drama loving D and D fan loves this movie, it's the worst thing that it could, could, could happen. Yeah, I, I want this to be, I want this to be the get everybody into the theater, happy, fun, right. Special effects, in jokes, out jokes, all sorts of things. Then when we're at, we're, when we're on movie five of the whole <laughs> expanded universe, then we can get the Andor, right? Then mm -hmm. we can get the the super dramatic yeah. and that sort of thing. Uh, let's not go for Andor yet. Let's let's go for Guardians of the Galaxy. Let's go mm -hmm. for fun, eat some popcorn, laugh a bit, marvel yeah. at the the in jokes and the special effects and the nods that the D and D players can have. Let's do that. And yeah. and so far, I think we're on track. Yeah, and uh, uh, that ties us thoughts to before we move on. Well, this links us to this next news item we have, which is that the movie clearly must be uh, high hopes for Hasbro because they announced that uh, they will have weak Q4 results based on low holiday sales. And this ties into previous strategy where they would say they would be cutting their workforce. They've used that, I think, as a sort of way to dovetail two things together. So low, bad Q4 results cutting 15% of its workforce, which is significant, um, even if it was already planned. Um, and all of this is based on really the sale of consumer products, right? Toys uh, going poorly for the holidays. Mm -hmm. The Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segments had strong growth. Hasbro Pulse continues to do really well. Licensing is doing really well. The president and COO will be leaving the company. Um, so, you know, interesting news and, and obviously I don't think it's, it's really super reflective of the OGL controversy, but, but I'm sure the two things were factors everybody at Hasbro was considering. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. I think sales were down. I think lots of, 
companies like this are cutting staff. We've we've heard of layoffs or, or job cut in like Amazon or you know a bunch of other companies right. are also Meta. doing it. So I'm not 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 surprised. Yeah, Meta, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, to be clear, as Teo said, what Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming is growing still, which is which is news that is not surprising because that's what Hasbro's putting its whole company uh, plan toward. And people that said, you know, the stock falling because of this open gaming license controversy on December 20th, before the worst of this controversy started, stock was at 55 a share right in the middle of it. January 13th, it hit a peak of $66 a share. So while everyone was freaking out for those two weeks, the price, the, the shares of stock went up about 20%. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's down about 10%. To, as of today, it was down at about 59. So it went down about 10% since the OGL announcement that they're going to continue it. So the stock price has nothing to do with really this open gaming likes and stuff right. or reality. Uh, <laughs> like most stocks, <laughs> they go up like and down, that. not based on anything other than the people behind the scenes who are making a lot of money on the stock yeah. going up or down. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll always keep an eye on Hasbro now. Uh, now, especially now, since they're turning their uh, business in the direction of digital, of of Wizards of the Coast, sort of taking a lead in that. Yeah. Tell me about the Tyranny of Dragons reprint. So, you know, we had two books back at the beginning of 5e as the first kind of hardbound adventures. Uh, those were brought together in 2019 under one volume. And now, again, with a new reprint. Uh, and it, I mean, the art is amazing. Beautiful new cover by Antonio Jose Manzanedo. Um, the book is $49.95. It's out now. And I mean, if you love covers, uh, I mean, here's another cover for you to collect. And it is a really gorgeous art of Tiamat. Incredible. Uh, and it wraps around to the back. It's spectacular. Uh, as far as I understand it, it's just a reprint. There's nothing changed inside. Lots of new critical role news. Uh, not only is the Legend of Vox Machina out, uh, season two is is in full swing. They have announced that there will be an agreement to produce the Mighty Nine as a, another campaign. The campaign itself, the role-playing game campaign, ran from January of 2018 into the mid-2021s. Uh, now the the adventuring party, which is a band of criminals and misfits, who can are the only ones who can prevent the kingdom from plunging into chaos, is going to become its own animated series, joining the Legend of Vox Machina. Yeah, and a first... and they're talking about movies. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, first look film deal with Critical Role, uh, and and I, and they're going to be using their own production studio apparently still, um, which is interesting. Um, they're the production banner Meta Pigeon, um, so I think that is what I read that as is probably there's still kind of healthy revenue sharing on the on the Critical Role side, uh, healthy involvement to drive the story and and how things go. Um, but that that's amazing. I mean, you know, three seasons already of one series, another season coming on and a movie. Oof. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. So as we think about new games, we also wanted to update everyone on two new uh, 
second editions of games, both 13th Age and Fantasy Age, two different games, but uh, still in the same role-playing game sphere, are coming out with second editions. Uh, for 13th Age, there is a 2E playtest. The, uh, the game was written by Rob Heinsu and Jonathan Tweet, who have been role-playing game designers on D&D in the past. And other games. You can go to a link, which we have... Yeah, other games, which we have a link in our show notes to Rob's Rob Heinsu's blog, where you can sign up to become a playtester. What about the second uh, second edition of Fantasy Age? So that's, uh, while the, the ones in playtest, 13th Age is in playtest, and you can be part of that. Fantasy Age is nearly complete. Um, they will have the book out in February, and you can already pre-order it and get the PDF for just $5 on top of the pre-order for the print book. Uh, the AG engine is one that has powered all kinds of RPGs uh, that Green Running makes. And so playing Fantasy Age is a great way to learn the other games. I also really love how Fantasy Age is sort of, Fantasy Age is sort of a, a simple D&D, a pretty neat system with some, some nice parts to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a 2008 game. So, you know, it's been a while since, since that RPG came out and now it's being reprinted. Chris Promise said that it's about 90% compatible. You can absolutely take stat blocks and adventures from the current first edition line and run them with second edition. For those of you in the art field or looking for art for your projects, the Smithsonian has now shared millions of images into the public domain. So the Smithsonian collections, including photographs, paintings, sculptures, and more, they're all available for use with a CC0 license that you can use in any way, including commercial use. And that's at the Smithsonian Institute, si.edu slash open access. There have been a couple threads we've been following on social media about sales for creators and sort of the woes of creating uh, and trying to make a business of it. Do you want to summarize these for us, Taz? Yeah. Um, Adam Hancock, who created an elf and an orc, had a little baby. And then the second volume of that um, shared uh, on Mastodon a really great thread about everything that happened in 2022, especially looking at, at this project. And it's really fascinating, basically, that some projects are just phenomenal successes, right? And especially the sequel to Elfin and Orc Had a Little Baby because Ginny D covers it, right? And it wasn't a paid sponsorship. She just mentions it and boom, you know, 3,300 copies of volume one and two are sold in one month, right? Uh, making like around 5K, actually around 8K, 9K uh, for those two. And it's just, that's amazing, right? Um, and so life-changing in a lot of ways from that, from a creator, small creator perspective. Uh, but then other products that Adam creates do not do as well. And he shares those numbers and thinks through kind of the whys of all of it. So really worth checking out. The other is Andreas Walters, who is often shared on Twitter, uh, stories about how hard it can be to run crowdfunding projects and make them profitable. Uh, he had run a while back an Owlbear plush toy project. And that raised $512,000 on Kickstarter when you consider the add-ons that came and, and kind of final uh, backing. But when you look at all of the fees, platform fees, manufacturing, taxes, shipping, he has to date lost about $8,000, right? 
And that's just one of those things where you see the Kickstarter amount and you think, oh, wow, half a million dollars, right? Andreas must be rolling in it. No, negative $8,000. And he says there are additional expenses still, two more books, computer minis, other stuff that are not yet uh, calculated in the costs. His expectation for shipping was 14000 and ended up being 75000 And he has not, none of these costs include him paying himself, right? So all of this time, all of this work to lose eight grand, right? That's how hard our industry can be. Um, so it's just incredible. And, and, and my heart goes out to Andreas. I'm, I'm thankful that he's willing to share this so that other people can learn from it and think about the importance of trying to really nail down these costs and maybe even have agreements around them with with uh, providers um because every creator that has had to deal with these sort of situations is just uh it's so difficult right so uh check that thread out it's also really really educational well worth it if we often get questions about play testing so now maybe there's an answer out there in pesto's guide to testing on crowdfunder um Pesto Enthusiast is also known as Spencer Hibnick. Uh, they are not, uh, they are one of the playtesters for MCDM, for MT Black, for the Uncaged Anthology and more. What Spencer did is release a guide to playtesting. What makes for great playtesting, how to prepare to playtest, how to track issues and resolve them, collecting feedback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Pesto is crowdfunding that at crowdfunder.com. And we have a link in the show notes. So if you want to check it out, it is Pesto's guide to testing. Last but not least, any awards? It's that time of the year again. Yeah. You I mean, we've talked about, yeah, we've talked about the Ennies before, uh, their annual tabletop awards. They're very important to creators even though there are a number of angles to the awards that can be difficult. Um, and we've talked about them in previous shows about sort of the goods and bads, but there are essentially three rounds to the Ennies Awards. You, as a creator, can submit your work for consideration. Then the judges will read over all of that, pick the works they like, and they'll group them into categories. Many of the categories are predefined, but they have the liberty to get rid of them or reassemble them as needed. Then they will share that with everybody and the public votes on them. And it's the public that then determines gold and silver winners in each of the categories, and they're announced at Gen Con. Um, so you can now be a part of that. If you're a creator, you can submit any product, podcast, blog, tool, you know, website, all that kind of thing, uh, created between May of 2022 and April 30 of 2023. Um, and so you, the, the submission form is open. You can go there and submit at any time. There will be a time when they close submissions so you can watch their, their announcements um, for that. We got through our news. There was a <laughs> lot of it. Next week, we'll, we will be recording from Winter Fantasy, so I'm very much looking forward to getting out there and talking with folks again. If you're going to be at Winter Fantasy, make sure you come up and say hi to Teos and yeah. me. <laughs> so let's thank everyone for listening. We really do appreciate all your support whether that support is monetarily through our Patreon or just listening and, and soaking in what we say and, and talking to us on social media. For those of you who are patrons, we really do appreciate it. Whether you are a master of dungeons, a special shout out goes to our master of the realms and our show notes. And we'd like to thank our masters of the multiverse, 
Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, Matias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, Graham Ward, and John Wilson. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you, everyone. Uh, if you like the show, please do consider supporting us at our Patreon at patreon.com slash mastering DND. Teos, where can people find you? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. Find me uh, on alphastream at dice.camp, sometimes on Twitter at alphastream. Find me at Winter Fantasy. How about you, Sean? Mm -hmm. uh, also at Winter Fantasy, but also on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The podcast Twitter feed is at Mastering D&D. We are also on Mastodon at Mastering D&D on Dice Camp, and I am on Mastodon at Sean Merwin at tabletop.social. And we are also on the YouTubes. We have our very own Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel where you can listen, watch, and leave your commentary. So, Teos, now that the OGL issue is partly out of the way, at least, and we've covered all the news that's fit to spit, what are we going to do now? Well, Sean, I feel a darkness is coming. A terrible, terrible darkness. The kind of darkness that, uh, you know, really just invokes all kinds of fear. Uh, so I think Shadow of the Deeming Lord is coming our way. It is coming our way. The shadow, the Schwalb shadow <laughs> will envelop us soon. Looking forward to it. Take care, everybody. <laughs>